Massive thank you as always to our top tier patrons, Sarah Turner. It's Not Just In Your Head is hosted by psychotherapist Dr. Harriet Fraud, substance use disorder counsellor Ekoi Hero, and myself, the editor and producer Liam Tate. This podcast is entirely funded by listeners, and as the famous meme states, we are critiquing capitalism because we are forced to participate in it in order to survive. So, if you can afford to give, then your contribution will ensure that we can keep making the show. However, if you can't, then please just leave a review on your podcast platform of choice, tell your friends about us, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Reddit, or YouTube. Massive thank you as always to L for organizing our monthly reading groups and episode discussions, which you, dear listener, can join in too. Just head over to our Eventbrite page and the link is in the show notes. In the mental health field, too often, we've made it seem as if it's just in your head. Just in your head. The landlord can hijack the rent by 20%. That impacts people's mental health. And have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. So drug policy has been one area that has created untold misery. And this has very recently created a very dire situation in people trying to access pain medication. And we are seeing some extremely disturbing trends, both in terms of policy and also public perception of what pain medication is for people. There is definitely currently this trend that sees especially opioids as a harmful medicine rather than medicine that can provide a necessary quality of life for people suffering from chronic injuries as well as cancer. It has gotten to the point where accessing medication that is necessary for a lot of people to either continue working or continuing to function at a comfortable level has become increasingly difficult. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't have said it better myself. That was a great summary. So my name is Bev Jackson. I'm 46. I have two daughters. I've been married for 19 years and I have a dog. I have Crohn's disease and psoriatic arthritis. When my Crohn's disease is active, I get pretty chronic kidney stones. And in 2017, I had a very experience at the hospital for I was admitted for kidney stone pain and was treated like a criminal. And I hadn't experienced anything like that prior to that time. I actually was denied medication by the hospitalist due to having a PTSD diagnosis for having been abused as a child. And so because of that, he said I was too high risk for addiction and he couldn't give me any medication. And for the next 24 hours, I was treated so horribly. Like it was so traumatic for me that whole day there. And that's how I started looking into this. I started researching it. This is how I reached out to, I first reached out to Claudia Mirandi, who started this organization in November of 2017. And we've just been building an organization since then and researching and learning and seeing what we can do to affect change. And it's called the Doctor Patient Forum now. That's the name of our nonprofit. It started as Don't Punish Pain Rally in 2017. And we're in the process of growing and getting funding so that we can actually try to create some kind of program for continuity of care for these patients because they have nowhere to go. It's a fairly common conversation around chronic illness, especially autoimmune disorder circles, because pain can be very much a part of a lot of of autoimmune disorders. Even myself, I've had issues with doctors and emergency rooms treating me like a quote-unquote drug seeker when you ask for medication for pain. I would have these like extremely painful dysmenorrhea, which is menstrual cramps that I would literally pass out from. And I remember passing out from one. So a friend of mine took me to the emergency room and then waking up in extreme pain. And they were just like, that sucks yeah. to be you. For somebody like me, at least the pain is guaranteed to go away. Yeah. Right? But even then, it's one of those things where pain impacts the quality of life significantly. Yeah, it does. And that's what people don't seem to understand. Like we're taking people who are stable, thriving, 
living great lives on medication with their pain treated and then we're actually making them bed bound. And so with chronic illness does come mental health issues. And a lot of times, in my opinion, it's because it's hard to be sick. Like it's just hard to be sick, especially when you're young, facing a life of not knowing when you're having surgery, when you're going to be in the hospital. It's just hard already, even when they treated pain, it was hard. And so people tend to sometimes struggle with mental health. And so that should make them want to give these patients more support, which I think is what was intended and not less because these algorithms and law enforcement and medical boards and these rules against doctors are really dictating healthcare right now. Everything seems to be to protect the doctors. And again, I don't blame them. I wouldn't do anything different if I were them because I'd be terrified too. But like where if you're on pain medication and say you're struggling with depression or your PTSD is getting bad and you should be able to go to your doctor and say, look, I'm having a hard time and they should be able to help you with it. Whether that means seeing a psychiatrist and getting some kind of mental health support, medication, whatever. Or even if it also means maybe keeping a little closer watch on you. If you do get opioids, make sure you're not developing any kind of use disorder. That's great. But none of that's happening. Instead, you're getting dismissed. So if you're struggling with depression, the one thing we know that you can't do is tell your doctor. And in this country with this mental health crisis going around for sure, like especially with COVID and everything, to create a scenario where you cannot ask for help when you are depressed is just disgusting. It's like the opposite of everything they're supposed to do is what they're doing. Would you like to kick us off by, are there like any particular area of, or any particular policies right now that is especially concerning that our listeners should know about? All the policies surrounding Ebbing are concerning right now. They've been, it's been getting increasingly worse since the, it started actually in 2012, started to get a little bad. And the first guidelines we saw come out actually was 2007 on the West Coast. And then after the CDC guidelines came out in 2016, things have just like exponentially gotten worse and worse and worse. And it seems like they're continuing to get worse all the time, even though updated guidelines came out in 2022 and media likes to portray that as, oh, that's great. Doctors can now prescribe more, but that's not actual patient care because no one really is addressing. There were 38 state laws created based on those arbitrary thresholds of the 2016 guidelines, plus the algorithms like risk score type algorithms that are combined with the prescription drug database and other unknown factors to flag doctors and to flag patients. Those are also based on those 2016 guidelines. And then payers, you know, insurance companies, they all have their own algorithms and policies and When the guidelines came out in 2016, there was like this very well-funded implementation plan and it was funded and extensive and it worked. They made sure it got implemented, but they don't have anything like that for this 2022 updated guidelines that I've seen. And so it felt to me a little bit like just a slap in the face for even anyone from the CDC to come out and be like, oh, it'll be better now because they know it's not going to be better because someone needs to actively help with all of these other laws and policies before it could ever get better. And it's just getting worse. If you would like to explain what was the major jump in of some of the specifics in the 2016 restrictions that came around. So the 2016 guidelines were supposed to be for opioid prescribing. They they came out and they were like, these are just suggestions, supposedly said these are just suggestions, but they really were done in a pretty shady manner with pretty like biased people. They chose only certain groups of people and then addiction doctors and really very few, if any, who specialized in pain. There were a few main things that that were in this. The first thing I'd like to say is that when they were created, it's, it you can see the overriding assumption was opioids for pain are bad. Removing them from someone's life is always good. That's the basic right. assumption, which isn't true, but that's what the, the whole theme was throughout. And so they used arbitrary thresholds, like, so MMEs, milligrams of morphine equivalent. It's just a way to determine the dose of opioid when you compare to other opioids. So if you're talking about morphine or you're talking about hydrocodone, it has a way to determine if what a similar dose is. It's not scientific. It's not even really based on any evidence at all. It was based on opinion a long, long time ago. Um, from patients. It really doesn't have anything science about it. And there's four different, four different um, 
formulas that you can use to to count it, but it doesn't matter. The CDC decided 90 MME is the cutoff, which wasn't based on uh, any kind of fact. And, um, you know, basically that you should hardly ever prescribe above that. And then 50 MME was sort of the, they like to say 50 MME is the yellow light and 90 is the red light. So they did these MME threshold type things. And one thing that is interesting that they love to call them evidence-based, but really they weren't. They did this analysis of the level of evidence of these guidelines. And almost all of them had little to no evidence behind them. And the evidence they had was very poor quality evidence. And so admittedly, it was on their expert opinion. And there were a lot of people, a lot of organizations, a lot of doctors, a lot of true experts who were like writing letters and saying, these are going to hurt people. You can't put these through like this. It's going to kill people. It's going to hurt people. You can't do this. You can't take away people's medication. And instead of those problems being addressed, all that they did was they said, and they still say it, anyone who pushed back against the guidelines were industry funded. They were funded by pharma. They were funded by Purdue. And it was they're paid to make it controversial, which really isn't very true. None of the patients were. And the vast majority of the experts that I saw, they weren't paid by pharmaceutical companies. But And then on the other hand, those who did take part in these guidelines were industry funded, a lot of them. A lot of them are paid expert witnesses in opioid litigation. A lot of them really are part of an industry where they make money by creating this opioid elimination new industry, really. So as soon as the guidelines came out in 2016, you started seeing like immediately people being cut off of their medication, really rapidly tapered or sudden discontinuation, a lot of patient dismissal, a lot of gaslighting going on, a lot of you're obviously not in pain, you're just a drug seeker, it's your fault, all of that in droves. And you just, and it's gotten worse since. It's gotten worse since. So 2022, they came out with an updated guideline where they supposedly removed some of these thresholds. And there was some improvement in it, but I don't, they could throw the guidelines in the garbage and it's not going to help anybody at this point. The damage is done. And unless they actively take part in de-implementing what they implemented and helping remove all of these thresholds all across the board, nothing's going to get better. But nobody is addressing it. Like none of the government agencies are addressing it. It's like they all know what's happening, but none of them want to take the initiative and say, all right, we got to do something about this. And so people are dying. Yeah. For our listeners, I would like to note opioids are a class of medication that people can and do develop tolerance to. But one of the major issues is that tolerance is conflated with addiction. If you have had long-term injury where you have been using medication so that you are not in extreme pain and that allows you to work and continue to sustain yourself. It is possible to have a fairly high level of tolerance where people are still very much using the drug as prescribed. Exactly. That's exactly right. And they conflate that all the time. And media kind of conflates addiction and overdose all the time when they talk about this opioid crisis. Really, the crisis is death because the addiction rates really haven't gone up all that much, not with any clear statistics anyway. But everyone talks about the opioid crisis, opioid crisis, and it really is this death crisis, this overdose crisis, because, and I do believe that I believe that at the height of prescribing in 92, 93, 94, if they had if they did nothing and allowed for that prescribing to continue, I don't think they would have nearly as many deaths as they have now. They created such a terrible environment that's truly sending people to the streets. We hear like the most common thing we hear from patients when they reach out to us is you're our last hope. It's either suicide or the street. Help me. And it's bad because there's not a whole lot we can offer them right now other than how to advocate for themselves and working behind the scenes. And then the other part of it is getting them harm reduction services like drug testing equipment or Narcan because a lot are going to the street. You have a lot of people who never would have gone before, not judging if you would or wouldn't, but just a group of people who have never gone to the street. And now they are and they're dying too because 
every so much has illicit fentanyl in it. And so we have this idea that kicking everyone off their medication is just good for public health. And I don't even, it doesn't even make sense anymore what they're doing because they're, we have the studies, we have the evidence showing it is more dangerous to cut these people off of medication and force tapers than to leave them on regardless of dose or medication combination. And they'll say that, right? You'll have CDC and FDA and experts say, yeah, don't force taper, don't dismiss patients. And I'm like, what do you, that's not doing any good. But what do you mean? No doctor will take these patients now because they're afraid of investigation. And so if no one's taking these patients and a doctor retires, or they're shut down by the DEA or doctors are making decisions based on what's best for them. And I don't blame them rather than what's best for the patient. There's just no one to take them. They're like lost. There is a huge issue. There was a huge crackdown. So to give our listeners some background there, the 2016 policy came with a lot of really heavy handed crackdown from the DEA. And a, a huge part of that was a lot of doctors were in justifiable fear of prison. And also just getting the licensed for prescribing pain medication above these limits. And again, for patients who are, for example, I remember hearing about a woman who was in a panic because her mother was dying in hospice with bone cancer. Bone cancer is ex- it can be extremely painful. And the hospice was unwilling to give her enough medication to control her pain. Yes. And that's common now. You hear them saying, There's exclusions. If you're dying, if you have cancer, if you have sickle cell, if you're palliative care, you're excluded, but you're not. Nobody is excluded. People with cancer contact us all the time because the oncologist is, I'm not willing to prescribe. Go to your primary care. Primary care is go to your, go to a pain doctor. It's six months to get in there. The pain doctor says, I'm not taking you if you need opioids. And there's nowhere to go. We say this all the time. If our doctors and our government doesn't allow our doctors to treat pain, it doesn't make pain cease to exist. It just means that someone else is going to be willing to treat them. And right now it's drug dealers. That's their only place to go. We've said for a long time, until it affects everyone, no one's going to really care all that much. But it's starting to get there. It's starting to affect people that aren't chronic pain patients, that are newly acute patients. Like double mastectomy, they'll call us and they're given Tylenol. And then they're gaslit. Like they get screamed at in the hospital because they say they're in pain. And it's bad. And everything has been to remove stigma from addiction, which let me tell you, it needs to happen. But concept that it has happened is only in theory because patients who use drugs, patients who have addiction, patients who are on medication for opioid use disorder are still treated like garbage. They're not treated better. They love to say that they've worked to be treated better, but they're not. Yeah, they're not at all. And it's one of those things where I have done homeless outreach on and off throughout my life. Uh, One of the experiences of one, talking to a lot of homeless people, it is incredible the number of people who have become homeless because of chronic pain. That's an excellent point. One thing that we always, we see that people don't seem to realize either is that no one's actually measuring patient outcome. Like you'll say, oh, things are great because prescribing is down 70%, but no one's measuring these patients. And so we did decide to put out a, just a questionnaire. It's not scientific, but one of the questions that we've asked people who have lost their medication is, are you newly disabled? And 30% of close to 800 people so far have told us they're newly disabled because they lost their medication. And when you're newly disabled, you lose your access to income and you lose your home. There's a lot of people who contact us, like you've just said, who have lost everything and they can't afford to live. And so people are killing themselves. Not to mention that I think as much as we talk about compassion in our society. There is no real compassion around physical chronic pain. No, there's none at <laughs> you know? all. And it's the opposite. It's like the, the, the people, I always use the term gaslit, but that's what's happening. It's just, you're looked at as you're lying. You're this drug seeker. You're this 
whatever else they want to say. And they'll say that shit is hurt. So if you're hurting, there's a reason that you're drug seeking. You're crazy. It's in your head, blah, blah, blah. And unfortunately- Which is the title of our podcast. It's not just in your head. And just like everything else in our country, we're marginalizing the already marginalized. So all of our risk scores and everyone who's getting really targeted in this are people without resources, people of color, women, often women who have been abused, all of women with mental illness, for sure. Mental illness is worked into these risk score algorithms. So you have, yeah. a, if you have any kind of mental illness, forget it. Like you can't be honest with your doctor. You'll have your medication taken away or you'll just get dismissed from their office. But either of you know what the incentives behind the doctors, I assume this is on the shoulders of doctors' decisions, why they're making the calculation, however cold, why they're doing what they're doing. The DEA has, there has been cases of doctors that have gone to prison for treating pain patients. Yeah. If if the risk of properly treating pain patients, meaning going above these quote-unquote unreasonable thresholds that flag you, right? So they put these thresholds that like she was explaining earlier of red flag, yellow flag, you have enough yellow and red flags, it doesn't matter that these patients are terminal. It doesn't matter that these patients have had years of stability and good function. It is basically, it's one of the major issues in medicine in general, right, is that it's a flowchart medicine where there it's algorithm-based rather than individual care-based. So you set off the algorithm that can set off a DEA investigation that can be from the physician's point of view, an incredible amount of stress because you are not only risking losing your career, but you are risking going to prison. Yeah, that's 100% exactly it. Like they have algorithms such as NARC's Care. So NARC's Care is a prescription database based algorithm where it's black box. So no one can know what's in it. It's one of the things our organization is fighting for regulation for. But the things we do know that may go in there are things like criminal justice data. One thing we know does go in there is mental health diagnoses. So if you're a patient and you have a diagnosis of PTSD or depression or anxiety in your chart, in your insurance claims, and you're getting an opioid, you are going to be flagged as a high-risk patient and the doctor's going to be flagged as prescribing to a high-risk patient. And they're making a lot of these decisions based on that. And if I've spent a lot of time reading different transcripts from doctors who were in trial for prescribing, and it's common for the expert witnesses to say, especially this one expert witness, he always says, this doctor prescribed to this woman who was sexually abused as a child, and that's contraindicated. And, and that's disgusting to me. So now we're taking women, we're taking people who are mental, have mental health issues, people who were abused as kids, we're re-traumatizing them and we're punishing doctors who are actually trying to help them. And so that's the other thing. These doctors get shut down. These patients are abandoned. They call 20, 30 doctors. Nobody will take them because no one wants to take patients who have complex issues. No one wants a patient with a chronic illness and mental health issues. No one wants these patients. And we know that. We know that in our country. We've had that that one survey since I think 2019, maybe in U of M that showed 40%, 40% of primary care doctors won't take a patient that's on long-term opioids. That's a big problem. Because no one else is taking them and they know it. They know all of them. Maybe right. they didn't in 2016, but they know it now. And it, everyone is just skirting around the issue. We do have some amazing organizations right now. Kate Nicholson runs a great organization. She's a civil rights fighting for policy change. We do have harm reduction community coming out supporting us also. But when I say nobody is doing anything, government agencies, there's, no, there's nothing funded to right. either fix this to do anything to help these patients or to change it so it stops happening. Because let me tell you, right. it's, getting, it's just getting worse and worse and worse. One of the major aspects of this issue is they're saying that, oh, we're going to change the standards so that more opioids can be prescribed. But one of the major reasons is, again, like the lack of transparency with these databases that you've mentioned. Because if doctors can, don't know the exact standards and what's being calculated, and also they are not saying that the DEA won't come after you. 
That's right. That's right. So if they are actively saying that you are protected from DEA persecution, and this is how being very active in making sure that is what is going to happen to the doctors by increasing their protection, by increasing dosages that are necessary for patients, then doctors are still going to be averse regardless of the standard changes because they don't know what's going into this database. They don't know how they're being graded. They don't know how to be cautious by the lack of transparency. And there is no guarantee of not, again, (laughs) going to prison. Right. And we could say, you can say to state medical boards, you can say to the DOJ, which I have to both, and say, unless you tell these doctors they aren't going to be investigated. It's okay for them to take abandoned patients. It's okay for them to try to keep these people alive. Unless you make that statement, no one's going to take these patients. And the answer is always the same. We can't do that because then it's giving them a free-for-all to just prescribe all they want. And so it's more important. Like It's been made clear in this country, it's way more important to lower prescribing than it is to keep people alive and safe. They'd, They'd rather sacrifice us. One of the facilitator of the core expert groups in 2016 actually made this statement that public health is to protect the whole and individual health is doing what's right for the individual. And you just have to know that you're going to have to sacrifice individuals to protect the whole, which sounds a lot like things like, I don't know, eugenics. It, it, it just sounds like a very scary statement in this country that individual people need to be willing to sacrifice themselves to protect the whole. But even with that, if there was evidence that Lord well, It's not protecting the whole. It's the big thing, right? Because exactly. everyone is going to, like cancer, over the lifetime, roughly what half of people end up with cancer. People get into car accidents. People have workplace injuries. People develop chronic illness. This is a issue that impacts the quality of life of an incredible number of people. The opioid-free surgery trend now is horrifying. If people want to offer that as an option for people, it's one thing, but it's cruelty to make that the standard for surgery. There was this one thread about this woman who had major back surgery where, you know, at an opioid-free hospital. And she was just talking about at first because she had bought on to the opioid-free surgery is good, right? So she agreed to the surgery. And then she was like, holy shit, can't, I cannot recover with this level of pain. How am I supposed to recover when I get no sleep? She has had some prior mild to moderate heart issues, but she was just like, yeah, because of the pain, my heart is deteriorating. And because I agreed to the surgery, no one will now give me pain medication. I am bedbound and my prescription requires that me as somebody recovering from back surgery go to a pharmacy myself. I cannot That's send right. my daughter, no. I cannot send my family member even though I have had major back surgery, even if I got prescribed, I wouldn't have access to the medication unless I can show up in person. And a lot of those thresholds, a lot of those laws were based on the 2016 guideline also. This, when in many states, I think my state, it's three days or an initial prescription for acute pain can only be three days. And then you yeah. have to go back to the doctor. And if you have yeah. 17 organs removed, you have to physically go to the doctor before they're allowed to give you another prescription. And it's ridiculous. Yeah. And if it were protecting anyone or helping anyone, then at least I could say, at least someone's being helped. But I don't see anyone being helped. Nobody is being helped. It really is. It's harming people because one of the things that's also like under prescribing medication for pain. So I did read another accounting of because a lot of people always think of overdose is like intentional or a neglect on the person that overdosed. But a lot of times, if one of the things that one of the overdoses, unfortunately, there was Narcan on hand, because I tell everyone, if you have 
opioid medication always have Narcan at the house, especially if you've been prescribed it for surgery, right? Because you're recovering, you're groggy, you're on a lot of medications. You are, even with pain medication, you are often still in some level of pain when you're recovering from surgery. It's not that uncommon for people to not remember when and what they took. Definitely. I think everybody should have Narcan on hand anyway with this, the number of people overdosing and dying from illicit fentanyl. I think everyone should have it on hand anyway. I really do. I think it it can't hurt you and it's good to have, it's good to have on hand for sure. Um, I I try and get them and to distribute for free whenever I get my hands on them. So that I had some sort of understanding or a basic summary that essentially this comes down to a computer program or a database that tracks people, shows their medical history, mental health history, and then that becomes the source of the problem, right? If there wasn't this database, would this problem exist? In my opinion, I think it's a huge part of the problem. I think Narc's Care is a huge part of the problem. I think prescription drug databases are a huge part of the problem anyway. But I do think that has a lot to do with it. I think people don't know that's always what's leading to this these patient decisions because they're told not to really talk about it much. But we've spoken to enough people that are told it's because of their risk scores. And yes, these doctors don't know what's going into it. But yeah, I think it's becoming the standard. And the scariest part of that, in my opinion is that absolutely nobody is regulating these algorithms. Nobody. FDA is supposed to under, I think, like medical devices and what other, that category, but they're not. No one is. So this software company creates this algorithm that leads to healthcare decisions and it's not regulated in the least, which to me is terrifying. Yeah, right. it's I mean, fully, fully automated dystopia, isn't it? That you can't yeah. argue with the machine because the machine is always right. That's, that's right. And it's, and they use those thresholds that 90 I was talking about. They use that in this program, the one, the Narc's Care program anyway. There's others. But so if you get 90 or above, you're automatically in the top 1% of all risk scores. So right away, it it's making decisions based on a number that means nothing. And really, in my opinion, the only reason those thresholds were put in there was for litigation. We talk about the litigation narrative that multi-district litigation has brought in $38 billion for our country so far, not to mention individual suits against doctors and from our government and all of that. And there was no, you couldn't say, oh, this is when a doctor's over-prescribing and this is when they aren't because there's no definition for it. And so they really decided to come up with, you hear them talking years ago and they said, we need to know when is it a doctor? When's it a drug dealer? So that's their standard, 90 MME. And that's what it was used for. And as soon as they came up with that number, it was implemented everywhere. And in these algorithms and the DEA is using it, is using it and state medical boards are using it and medical decisions are made based on it. And it's punishing already marginalized people. And because it does use criminal justice data, or at least they claimed they would be using criminal justice data, it's also kind of, it's also like racially biased because we know in this country, there's a lot more black people in prison than white people. And so if you're in the criminal justice system to begin with, then you're going to have already suspect device. Yeah. Yeah. So it's racial bias immediately and still no one is even regulating it. This actually deteriorates significantly if you are going to consider mental health as part of these algorithms, right? Ultimately, you know, what oftentimes people, especially like chronic disability, chronic pain, people develop PT, people without mental health develop PTSD from having to go through these painful episodes and these bureaucratic nightmares. Absolutely. I One thing they know that does, um, can contribute to risk of addiction is trauma. And yeah. we're actually causing trauma in all of these patients who wouldn't have been exposed to this trauma before. Increasing their risk of addiction, we're causing all of the things that are listed as red flags. Like one of the things is if you've had more than one prescriber in a period of two years, when DOJ is shutting down doctors and you're forced to find another prescriber, then you have to get more than one, right? So then you're flagged and the new doctor is flagged. And distance from patient to prescriber is another one too. But I think in Narc's care, they allow 25 miles 
if you live in the city and 40 miles if you don't from patient to prescriber. But we have patients that they're flying across the country because they finding a doctor within 25 miles is insane. People can't find doctors within their states. And then cash only. That's another one that they decided in all their brilliance to be worked into all these algorithms. So you have patients who don't quite qualify for Medicaid, can't pay for insurance, have no choice but to pay cash only, but then they're flagged also. And so we're just, it's actually a disaster. We're causing the exact situation they're flagging. They're always taking out the top or investigating the top two to 5% of prescribers. But because of how statistics work, there's always going to be a top percent of prescribers. And these doctors get kickback letters. They get report cards from their insurance company, from these software companies, medical board, Department of Health. They're inundated with these letters. And there's a health policy lawyer, Jen Oliva, that's been fighting against us for a really long time. And she's actually on our board now. And she gives this example, like if you're a doctor and 12 patients that day and you're on your fourth patient and you open your mail and there's a report card that says you're the top percent prescriber, what are you going to do with your patients for the rest of the day? Most likely you're going to dismiss them or you're not going to prescribe. So it's greatly affecting patients. Yeah, it's wild. that I can't remember the quote exactly, but it's the idea of that the assumption is that someone might have evil intent, but actually it's just wild incompetence. And you have to wonder, like you said, that there's this sort of legal angle to the whole thing. But you just wonder if the architects of the system were just inept, opposed to malicious. It's hard to know, right? Because for a long time, it's like, what's their end game? Okay, they're doing this, but why? What is the reason? Nothing makes sense. And I definitely don't think all of them were malicious at all. I do think a lot of it was created for litigation, but I do also think that a lot of these experts and doctors really thought if they stopped prescribing or lowered prescribing, addiction rates would come down and deaths would come down. And I think that a lot were very well-meaning people who just had bad information. That's been one of the biggest, I work as a substance user counselor, and one of the biggest mistakes, both socially, is so pervasive in our society that it is the substance that causes addiction rather than the conditions of people's lives. Absolutely. I, yeah, we say that all the time. Drugs don't cause addiction and we get... In itself, in itself. it can. It, there are drugs that cause potential tolerance and withdrawal, but those are... But we don't necessarily go around calling like SSRIs addictive because they also develop withdrawal and tolerance as well, for example. That's exactly right. And we don't, we... Yeah, we're fine with that, I guess. To right, you know. Yeah, if it makes you feel good. You develop tolerance and withdrawal to insulin, and we don't go around calling insulins an addictive medication. Yeah, everything was created on this false policy that doctors created this opioid crisis. That's what everyone believes. If you go out into the street and you ask somebody, what is the opioid crisis? Who caused it? Chances are you'll find people who say doctors over prescribing. How do we fix it? Lower prescribing. But that was propaganda that was put out there. I'm not saying pharmaceutical companies are blameless. I think pharmaceutical companies are shady across the board in all the areas, not just in opioids. I'm not saying blameless in life, but they did not cause this crisis of death right now. They didn't. I think at the highest rate, like didn't Purdue, they had what, like 4% of or 5% of the market. And you have all of these like videos and series and movies about Purdue and OxyContin and how they caused the opioid crisis. Here we are back at the level of prescribing way before Purdue even was a thing, before OxyContin. And how come things are getting worse? Why aren't they better? When will they get better? One of the major things of talking to, and that is one benefit of like platforms like Twitter and Facebook, et cetera, because you get an access to a lot of people and a lot of people's different experiences, right? So one of the major things that I rarely hear talked about in terms of like chronic pain and chronic pain, especially stemming from chronic injury, is often that we have such a bad medical leave system in our employment sector. Like a lot of the chronic pain crisis is a working conditions crisis where people can't take enough time off work to properly heal. They work in injured and then the injury turns into a chronic problem of which then they now need pain management medication to be able to work 
with this chronic injury. And nobody addresses these, the lack of leave and the lack of worker protections if you get injured or if you get sick, unless if you work at like places like Target or a McDonald's, there is really no protection. If you get sick, you're fucked. So you have to work. It's definitely a symptom of our whole system being broken, broken. And you'll hear different experts and and Carl Hart even say things like the war on drugs is a jobs program. And I didn't understand exactly what they meant at first, but it is, it truly is like the addiction industry, just prison system, like the war on drugs feeds those systems. And, but the war on drugs prohibition is what caused these deaths, like prohibition, the war on drugs killed a hundred thousand people. It just did. If you look at the international toll, it's in the millions, but yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's definitely in the millions. But in our country, if they don't do something drastic really soon, it's just going to keep climbing and climbing. I mean, it, it is driving people to justifiably consider street supply. Yeah. And they know it. They know it. In the CDC guidelines, they put out that survey that said anyone who admitted to misusing opioids, not abusing, but misusing, meaning using ones that didn't didn't get prescribed to you or a different dose. Those who right. admitted to misusing, why did you do that? And 67% said to self-treat pain. And the next question, the next statistics after that was 11% of the people who said they did it for a different reason. So it was by far the biggest reason people misuse opioids is to self-treat pain. So our country knew that. So what did they do? They stopped treating pain. Did they want people to go to the street? Was that their goal? The worst reading of it would be that rather than it's professionals not knowing the right information, it's that because I'm a professional, I'm going to make the right decision. It's like a credentialized perspective, right? Because I'm qualified, I know better than you. And that might be part of it. It might have been absolutely 0% part of it. It's just a. am reading this very interesting book, The Tyranny of Merit at the minute. And it's a point that he makes about particularly, it's the same in the UK as well, just the the sort of credentialization being almost the most important thing <laughs> in your whole life and that how right. that has driven all kinds of political divides and consequences. Um, yeah, that's a good point. That's a great point, actually. And it also follows the standard boilerplate of a lot of like abstinence-based policies, right? Because back in the 90s and aughts when abstinence-only sex education was, and it still is extremely commonplace in the American education system, it's the same thing of what does removing empowerment from people accomplish? Nothing. It usually has extremely negative outcomes. And yet we keep doing it over and over. Yeah, definitely. We definitely keep doing it over. And look how long it took our country to even buy into the concept of medically treated opioid use disorder. But now you have the same people pushing for it, pushing against prescription opioids for pain, which makes no sense because truly prescription opioids for pain are a harm reduction measure at this point. Because if they get opioids for pain from their doctor, they're not going to die. If they don't get it, there's a decent chance that they will die. If they go to the street, there's a good chance for a die. And just again, like a life of chronic pain, obviously, I am absolutely not promoting suicide in any way. But if you have a certain level of physical pain that is a part of your life on an extremely regular basis where you know that is not going to end in in any reasonable time frame, then it is not out of human imagination to when people start, people aren't sick when they start thinking, maybe life isn't worth living right? They're not sick in the head. They are people in need of dire help. Yes, absolutely. And Dr. Stefan Kertes is actually doing a study out of University of Alabama in Birmingham right now, a suicide study for people who have been cut off of their pain medication. But yeah, you're that's a it's a great point because I say this all the time that we hear from people and they tell us their death plans. And these people who don't, these are people who don't want to die. So you're taking people who actually don't even have mental health struggles and you're making them want to kill themselves because they don't have pain treated. And, and then if they go to the emergency room, because they're afraid they're going to kill themselves. But now, like, 
they become even higher risk patients that get even less access to pain medication. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've had people who were on pretty high dose of opioids and they were cut by three quarters overnight. And they're like, oh, if I just go to the emergency room and I tell them I'm suicidal because they become suicidal, then they'll help me. But the opposite happens. They get Baker acted and they get the medication cut off immediately. They'll never get medication again, even though the reason they're telling them is because of pain. They'll never get it. And we live in this time where they're like, everything's about mindfulness. Everything's about positive thinking. Cannot positive think your way out of a certain level of physical pain. Exactly. And this term catastrophizing, that is kind of a controversial term. But what they mean by it is like, if you're sick and you spend a lot of time worrying about your illness, worrying about your sickness, worrying about becoming sick again and being in pain, they say that's catastrophizing. And they say it's one of the biggest influences on if your pain is going to be managed well. So if you spend a lot of time, so they say, worried about your illness, then your illness is going to have less of a chance of being treated. But I can tell you for someone with Crohn's that's in a decent remission, I never worried about my next flare up as much as I do now. After that hospital stay in 2017, every single day of my life, I'm afraid if I get sick again, what am I going to do? Because there's no backup. There's no, okay, they'll at least treat me well. Like they'll at least help me get out of pain. Chances are they won't. And so they're, again, causing people to do the things they say are causing the problem to begin with. And every decision they make is leading in that direction. One also like, you know, less talked about and hidden aspect of this is I know a lot of people who have gone through chronic pain that have had such horrible experiences with the medical system that they now avoid needed medical care. Yes, it's common. I did when I had covid a few weeks ago, I had COVID last year. The last year, my fever was 105 and I should have gone to the hospital, but I didn't. And this year it was 104 and I wouldn't have gone if I needed to. I'm too afraid. I'm too yeah. afraid. Yeah, no. That's, and I advocate and, all day. This is what I do when I'm still afraid. Yeah. Right. No. And especially is the, one of the things about, because sometimes people are just like, oh, you just need to advocate for yourself better. And it's just when you're in extreme pain or if you're really ill at the hospital, you are in no shape to advocate for yourself. That's why yeah, you're there. Exactly. That's why you're there. If you look at some of the red flags that like attorney generals have put forth and these lawyers have put forth in the DOJ, these red flags are so ridiculous. If you're dressed too nicely, or if you're dressed in a sloppy manner, those are both red flags. Yes. If you don't know the name of your medication, or if you know the name of your medication, both red flags. If you're crying at all, that's a huge red flag. But if you're calm, another red flag. It never ends. Like I remember, so I saw one from Attorney General. You can't one do anything state. right. No, you, you can't. can't. And you're right. sick. You're sick, and you're in pain, and you need to go to the emergency room. You shouldn't have to be thinking. Oh, what do I say? How do I say it? What do I wear? What should I do? How do I do it? That should not even be part of the process at all. Right. When I was denied medication for having a childhood of sexual abuse, I collected, I was like, surely I'm the only one this has happened to, but that I wasn't. And we have story after story of women, and it's usually women. We have a few men, but mostly women who were denied pain medication because they were either abused as a child in domestic violence or raped as an adult. Doctors are using that as a reason to not prescribe medication, which I cannot even express to you how traumatic that is. To take someone who was abused or raped and then to punish them for it, which is what you're doing, not you, them. It's atrocious. It's horrible. And these are, we're in a country where they're like, come forward if you need help. Don't hide anything. How are you supposed to come forward if you need help when you're going to get punished for coming forward? These are things that really greatly impact family members and caretakers. It's not just the pain patient that is now terrified of going to the doctor. Right. Right? It's not just pain patients that are terrified of being candid and honest with their physicians and their medical providers, right? It's their family members. It's their friends. Like this can put a chilling effect that like ripples like a stone in a pond to like the social network throughout people's social networks. Because I know so many people that are just like, oh yeah, like seeing how 
my mom or my dad or my partner or a, my child or my friend and how they were treated in an emergency room, I am terrified to go get care. It's that's absolutely true. We hear that all the time. And then the other side of that is because it seems right now the number one focus in healthcare is to not use opioids for pain and everything is viewed through that lens. Patients, a lot of big diagnoses seem to be missed because you're the healthcare system is assuming you're coming in for drugs. And because of that, they're going to assume you're a drug seeker, get out. They're not doing tests. I've heard it time and time again that, and it's often women, sometimes men, they're sent out. Like there was a recent death in the sickle cell community and she had videoed her situation in the emergency room for a few months and she was treated like a criminal, horrific the way they treated her. And she did just pass away. I don't know if it's because they treated her poorly. I'm not fully sure, but yeah, they're missing a lot of really serious diagnoses because they just assume yeah. that you're drunk. And pain can literally physically kill people. A lot of people don't know this. What we have ultimately seen is like this abstinence-only policy applied not just to people who use drugs or street drugs and have a very chaotic relationship with their drug use, but also it is expanding in, in, in just incredible ways because right now, currently, we have a huge Adderall shortage. Yeah. And so I'm seeing similar things of people going before like, I have used this medication to function at my job that requires extreme high functioning, right? And focus. And I cannot be without this medication. And people are going to the street supply. But also, if you admit to that, or if that is found out, then you are removed from being oftentimes removed from having access to that medication for the foreseeable future. So we're seeing that same pattern repeat itself in areas of prescribed medications like benzodiazepines. Now, if you go to the hospital and you are having an extreme panic attack as someone that has had panic attacks before, extremely horrible experience. And they're just like, oh, sorry, we don't give benzodiazepines. Yeah. And and a lot of that is from the algorithms too, because like in Narc's care, there's the opioid category, narcotic category. There's the sedative category where you have your benzos and sleeping pills and muscle relaxers. And then there's the stimulant category where you have things like like Adderall and some weight loss medicines, but it's all part of that. It all goes back to that where they are making people choose between benzos and opioids. People have been on both for decades and now they're making them choose. And I hear from people all the time saying, my doctor's making me choose between my mental health and my physical health. And I don't know what to do. One of the most extreme cases, a patient in North Carolina had pretty severe bipolar disorder and she had been treated for bipolar, her physical pain for years. And her doctor came in one day and he was like, it doesn't look good for me to have you being treated for mental health and pain. So you either have to give up your mental health treatment or give up your pain treatment. And she gave up her bipolar medication. And as you would imagine, she didn't do well after that, but it looked better for the doctor because his algorithms. And again, I'm not blaming doctors because I don't, what the pressure. They don't control the algorithm. They don't control the algorithm. No. And they feel, they know, like they're putting doctors in the position to make decisions where they know there's a good chance a patient could be harmed, but they have to make, and you'll hear doctors say that all the time to patients. I am sorry, but I have to make this decision. I have had to get my numbers down. I can't give this to you anymore. And that's a kiss of death. We just had one patient call. She said she called 54 doctors to try to find a new doctor. And we've had people die. Danny recently took his life. And there's another woman on our board whose husband sadly took his life. And it's truly happening. But then you have the people like Andrew Kaladny and those other anti-opioid zealot type people who are forming the narrative who will say, and he said it again recently, it is nonsense that people die from suicide because of pain. He just says it's bogus. It's bogus. It's a scam. It's not true. It sure seems to be a slap in the face to people who've lost loved ones due to pain. And I mean, it's one of those things where generally speaking, right? I know that medically assisted dying is a very controversial subject for a lot of people, but people A lot of people that have chosen medically assisted dying is because they are, you know, trying to exert some level of control over their lives in terms of how much suffering they're willing to tolerate. Yeah, we've had patients, uh, we had one go to Switzerland to get approved for that. And I'm sure you've seen the ones on Twitter from Canada who, with their main program, 
all because they lost their access to their prescription opioids for chronic pain and they've taken their lives and the government's allowing that to happen instead of giving opioids. And it just seems so backwards. And the fact that this is 2023, it just, I can't tell you how many times a day I'm like, I can't believe it got this bad. Even people that don't necessarily are taking that, that for chronic pain reasons, people who do that under medical reason are choosing that route because they want to avoid suffering. If pain is suffering, then how is it that that chronic pain suffering doesn't cause? So that is such an irrational statement for some. They should not be allowed to be an advocate, a witness of any kind, if that is the kind of statement that they're making. I don't care how much credentials and how many letters you have behind your name. If you are asinine enough to say that (laughs) chronic physical pain is never a risk for suicide, you are either extremely ignorant person or an extremely callous person. If it was a story or a movie, you know how that would end up, right? (laughs) No one likes a smart ass, right? Yeah. Eventually, that person would find themselves in that situation. That would be the dramatic irony thing, wouldn't it? And unfortunately, these are the people with those opinions who are dictating drug policy in our country right now. And they have been for a a good 10 years. And it's it's terrible. They're They're callous and they don't base their information on science. But they certainly have a lot of influence on government and industry and all of that. And they do have conflicts of interest somehow. No one seems to care about their conflicts of interest. They only seem to care if someone took a dollar from Purdue and then go and then they advocate for people with chronic pain. But yeah, it's a difficult situation and I don't know how to fix it. All we know to do is try to get legislation. We've pushed and been successful getting legislation in some states, but even with legislation protecting doctors and patients, it doesn't protect the doctors from the Department of Justice. So that's the piece that's missing. Like, how do you get DEA oversight? How do you get the DEA to change their algorithms to update them for what they should be? And how do you get algorithms that are transparent so people know what's going into them? All of that needs to happen. One of the ways that I advocate in ways that I can, especially within my social circles, is also this opioids are legitimate medicine. Yeah. (laughs) And there is now this sense that opioids are never legitimate medicine. There is no reason to ever take them. And I'm just like, oh, no, opioids are absolutely legitimate medicine. They are not optional for many people. They are not recreational. They are essential for And again, quality of life is not something that is of high concern in American policy. Have you noticed the people's faces when you say those things? Are you met with, what are you talking about? They're necessary medications. It's as if you're saying the craziest thing in the entire world because... Because I will go as far as to say the issue with our poisoned drug, like street supply, right, isn't that fentanyl is bad in itself. Also, I will go on record. Fentanyl is legitimate medicine. You do not want a lot of surgery. You don't want to be in like terminal cancer stages without access. The reason that it's killing people is because people do not know the strength and dose of whatever drug they come across. Yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah. Drug dealers don't say half a teaspoon <laughs> right. of this is 275 milligrams of fentanyl, right? Yeah, they don't know. They don't know. And we've had, we just had someone contact us a few weeks ago who he's been buying medication from someone, OxyContin from someone for a while because he had a terrible accident and he lost his access to his medication after being stable. And he just said, I had a recent, I'm a new father. I just had a baby and he's, I'm scared to keep buying this medication, but I don't have a choice. And that's part of it because a lot of pain patients never bought before are being really ushered to the street. And we're trying to come up with some, get our hands on some drug testing equipment that maybe could be geared towards pain patients also, because although we never want people to go to the street, we never tell them to go to the street. They tell us they're going to the street and we have to figure out a way for them to test their pills where it's accurate. And so they know what's in there because a lot of times, and people will say, don't they know they 
they could die. And they say all the time, I would rather die and be in pain. So what do I have to lose? And it's also just a lot of harm reduction practices as a harm reductionist myself is fundamentally based on we want people to live. We don't want people to die. What we do is because ignoring people's needs and enforcing mindless abstinence kills people. That's right. That's absolutely right. Flat out kills people. And our government is starting to give money to harm reduction and it's starting to believe in harm reduction. And a lot of the litigation funds, the 38 billion is going to harm reduction. But unfortunately, the places they're going, they never, have you noticed it never, ever even addressed abandoned patients? None of this money right. is going to the, and when I ask, you know, with crickets, like they look at you like, what are you talking about? Like it's, it's bizarre because harm reduction, like you just said, is to keep people alive. But when it actually been really distressed that a lot of pain patients are now pushed bup instead of pain medication. Oh, you have no idea. Yes, that's very common. And the reason is, again, these algorithms, it's schedule three as opposed to schedule two. Doctors are a lot, feel a lot safer prescribing it. They know that it's not going to help their pain as much. Look, it should be an option for pain patients to try bup. If it works, it's great. But you if it doesn't. If it doesn't, it doesn't. It doesn't. But if you've given it and they say it doesn't work, that's a red flag again. And sometimes to go on Suboxone or Subutac, the algorithm reads that as an OUD diagnosis. So again, you'll never get regular pain medication again. And I do want to say the media and all of this and the narrative is pit people who use drugs, people with addiction against chronic pain patients and vice versa. And they'll fight with each other. Like pain patients will be like, we're in this place because of you. And people with addiction are like, my family member died because of you and all of that kind of stuff. But we have got to figure out a way to join forces because we are all in the same position because of really bad policy. I will advocate since substance use disorder clients are my, my thing, but ignoring whether it is emotional pain, whether it is pain from psychological trauma, whether it is physical pain, ignoring that and not Meeting people's needs just only makes things worse. It absolutely does. And uh, we keep talking about harm reduction and medication for opioid use disorder. But really, a lot of the people who call us for help are people on medication for opioid use disorder. And they're treated horrifically when they have acute pain. No matter what, when you have pain, whether you're on opioids for addiction or you're on opioids for pain, if you're on them, you're treated horribly if you have an acute pain issue. That's it. There was a woman in, I think she was Michigan. She was on a pretty decent dose of methadone maintenance, had been on it for 20 years. She had a severe, doing very well, had severe acute issue, went to the hospital. And not only would they not give her pain medication for her acute pain, they just cold, flat out stopped her methadone, just stopped it. Are they crazy? Like you couldn't do anything worse, but that's what they're doing. Yeah, that's just it. It's anyone with addiction, anyone with pain. If you're on daily opioids for pain, you're screwed in the system right now unless we figure out a way to just for our listeners, buprenorphine is a medication, a newer medication that is now used for opioid use disorder as a medically assisted treatment, but it is one of the reasons that buprenorphine is so favored is because it quote unquote doesn't get people high. Again, like we are always happy to have more tools to help people. But at the same time, again, there are cases where like people have been like, I am better on methadone and they are, and they're just like, nope, all you get is butte. Yeah. Oh, that's definitely. And we've had, I've said this before that we, it used to be that people with opioid use disorder had to lie about having pain to have any access to treatment. And now people in pain are having to lie about having addiction to access any form of treatment. And there's a doctor's office that was shut down in California a few months ago that led to several, two patients, actually three deaths. And I think two to 300 patients were displaced from there. And A couple of them were able to get into a methadone clinic, but it's very difficult to even get a pain patient in a methadone clinic because that's not what it's funded for. We have a doctor who works in a detox center and he said, I can't tell you the last time we had an admission for someone who actually had addiction issues. 
He's like, they're all pain patients being cut off their medication and they're flooding addiction treatment centers and no one's coming up with anything to fix it. Like something, someone needs to speak out. Something has to happen because something's going to break. Like, I just, I don't know. I don't know what else to do about it other than to continue to try to scream from the rooftops. And hopefully we can figure out oversight of these algorithms. But I don't know if you have any ideas, I'm all ears. I think the stories and the details you've given are persuasive enough because they're (laughs) reality of the horror of all of it. So I think at least that's the first part of it is that people understand what's going on. So in that respect, it's step one is complete. But then the step two is, yeah, you just have to persuade. You have to persuade important people or just the masses that's important in gathering together and saying all this stuff, because that seems to be the thing is what is the persuasive perspective because the reason the sort of dumb heuristic of oh they're a druggie they don't deserve anything is clearly it's a persuasive meme that sticks in people's heads right however immoral and abhorrent it is so you need this sort of similar thing where yeah it's just connecting with people's humanity it's like people know what they're talking about (laughs) people know what experience they're going through listen to them people don't deserve to be in pain Right, and whether... you could be in this situation as well one day. Yeah, it's okay. like even just applying if a, sort of a, a just pure self-interest. You know? yeah, that's everyone, we always say everyone is one day, one step, one surgery, one accident away from being in this position. And one reason why they aren't doing anything to fix it is because they aren't studying it, right? So they have no way, like the, Dr. Kertens have even gotten pu- pushed back against his suicide study. They didn't want him to study it necessarily. And so... I do think part of it is raising funds and hopefully a researcher and a scientist will take this over and study patient outcome. We have to see what's happening to these patients after law enforcement shuts them down. We have to see how many die. We have to see how quickly they die. We have to see how many were able to get care from there and if they're how they're doing now. Did they develop addiction right. because they went to the street to self-treat pain and became addicted to or did they become homeless? That's a huge <laughs> metric. That's a huge metric that often gets missed because Good point. Good point. a lot of people will say things like, if you're in chronic pain, you can just go on disability. Do people know how fucking oh terrifying the disability Please. process is? That's also one of the one of these amazing anti-opioid zealots who, because she's also an expert witness, made millions doing it in litigation. She often says that the whole reason pain patients want opioids is because that way we're able to get disability. That's the whole reason that we enjoy being professional patients, she calls it, so we could get our disability payments. Disability is enforced poverty. You make so little on disability that nobody in their right mind really would go through the gauntlet that is required to get it unless they are truly committed. We had a disability advocate on recently and listening to the process is just gutting. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of our patients are disabled. I'm going to have to run in a minute. I have to get my kids from school. It's 222 here. Oh, thank you so much for your time. Do you have anything closing that you would like to get out? It's just been a pleasure speaking with you. It's always encouraging to see other people speak about it that know what's happening. I'd love to keep in touch with you and let me know how you're doing. And maybe we could join forces and collaborate a little bit. I would love that. Yeah, that would be great. Our organization is called the Doctor Patient Forum. If anyone wants to reach out to me, they can email me at bev, B-E-V, at thedoctorpatientforum.com and I'll email you the rest of the links and stuff. They're welcome. We have a state advocacy group in each state on Facebook. So every state has their own group. And then we have a national one on Facebook also. At the very least, people can find other people who understand it and can give them support. Massive thank you as always to our VIP patrons, Rebecca Johns, Bruce Rogers Vaughan, Alexander Lashley, Sheena Belmus, Seamus O'Connell, Alex Placito, Alexandra McCormick, Wig Shaker, and Sean Venado. By the way, listeners, if you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolf and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head. And if you want to hear even more from Harriet, check out her radio show, Inter- 
Ed's personal update on WBAI and in the WBAI archives.